The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the hairiest beast to ever eat at the... You know, I lost it. Fuck it. I was going to say, you shit the bed on that one, didn't you? I did. I'm I'm sick as shit. I've been sick since last week. Um, Fucking this cough, man. I mean, it's getting better, but Jesus H. Fucking Christ. I feel like shit. I clicked the button twice, and it's still not doing anything. Your vibrator won't come on? What happened? I hate you. So we have a we have a new sponsor. Oh, we do. Uh huh. Oh Lord, I'm not happy with this, am I? Here at the Pacific Northwest Institute, we're trying to mate Sasquatches with real living people. Won't you help today? If you would like to donate your mating experience to try to mate with Tammy, please send your emails to Tammy Underwood at Twisted Blue LLC dot com. With your help, we can have Sasquatches throughout our woods once again. I fucking hate you. You're welcome. <laughs> Made a Sasquatch. I cannot have children anymore. I thought about that while I was sitting on the crapper. Well, thank you, I think. <laughs> Pretty sure everybody didn't want to know that. <coughs> oh, my God. Ugh. Then I thought Jen Dahl loved me. She dumped me. For who? Nobody. Because I told her that, that Disneyland is the same as a carnival or a fair. Okay. It's the same. Except yeah. that Disneyland has, a, a, a you know, like Disney World, all that Disney shit, has, has a, a fixed location. Yeah, and a theme. And a theme. Mm-hmm. And fairs. That's really the it's only like thing. Be, yeah, it's just, Because yeah. we were arguing, and this is for our listeners out there. So, Jen Dull and I were arguing, and then she said, bye, Felicia, and I fucking just totally, you know, kicked me just totally away from her. She said, fuck off, which is fine. But we were arguing that she knows this person is who is a, obsessed with Disney, and this okay. is an adult, doesn't have kids, and her and her friends go to Disney quite often. Okay. And she said, that's a mental disorder. So, wait, wait a minute, that's her obsession, but yours is fucking serial killers. That's different. No, same, same. <laughs> That's same. Yeah. So officially, Jen Dahl's called a mean girl because she's one of the mean girls now. Because she hung up on you. <laughs> she, yeah, she, she hung up on me and now and, and, and she kicked me to the curb. Oh, she'll call you back on Monday. Don't worry no, she it. won't. I'm not going to talk to her. <laughs> yes, you will. Nope. <laughs> Why is your dog being all lovey to me right now? I don't know. Maybe she smells skunk. Shut up. I swear I smelled in your kitchen. You know, let's close your legs. Your breast smells. I hate you. All right. Let's get into the episode one of a uh, three-parter. Yeah, it's at least a three-parter. The, the West, West Memphis, Memphis Three. Yeah, the West Memphis Three. And this one, I think, is going to take a lot of debate. I've watched uh, Paradise Lost and the follow-up on that one, part one and two, and it is just horrendous what happened to these kids. Um. Granted, the crime itself was horrendous, too, but what they did to these kids is horrendous. Um, on the afternoon of May 6, 1993, West Memphis, which is a small town in Arkansas, for those who don't know, um, was rocked by news of the discovery of mutilated bodies of three eight-year-old boys. 
Okay, the rumors regarding the nature of the murder spread, like, I mean, because apparently it's a small community, like wildfire, right, through this town. And it was soon well known that the boys had been cut with a knife, raped, and at least one of the boys' genitals had been cut. Um, Many of those rumors were based on inaccurate police assumptions, though, too. So by 12 p.m. the next day, police were questioning their first suspect, a kid by the name of Damian Eccles. Then a couple weeks later, Jesse Miskley, and, uh, Miss Kelly, I'm sorry, um, was, who was a friend of Eccles, confessed to the murders and implicated Damian and another friend, Jason Baldwin. Now, shortly after, you know, the confession, the three teenagers were arrested and charged with the murders of James Moore, Stephen Branch and Christopher Byers. Okay, now the citizens of West Memphis were relieved that the monsters that had committed these heinous crimes had been apprehended and justice would be served. There was a great deal of anger in the community directed towards those three adolescents. Supposedly, they were involved in satanic cults, and they were accused of killing three innocent boys as part of a satanic ritual. Um, The rumors of satanic groups had abounded in this dominantly Baptist community for decades. Because, you know, remember back in the late 80s, early 90s, when that was the hype, that all of us kids were listening to Satan music and... Yeah, if you played a Beatles album backwards and it says, Tears to My Dear Satan or whatever. Yeah. yeah, Bullshit um, like that. If you're you're playing albums backwards, though, you are Satan. Don't look any further. You're going to hear shit that, you know... Yeah. That's fucking just stupid. Anyway, yeah. continue on. And like Hotel California was, you know. <laughs> a good um, song to get stoned to? And yeah, Alistair funny. Crowley. Mr. Crowley by Ozzy does an awesome song. I know. It is. Um, anyways, so they were abundant in that area. So details of their exploits were well known, although there was never any proof of any murders actually having been performed in the past. So from, t- from the time the arrests were made until they were tried, local papers fed the community's bloodlust with stories of satanic abominations appearing on a regular basis. On Wednesday, January 19, 1994, Jesse Miskelly was sent to trial after an attempt to have his confession suppressed was denied. Now, two weeks later, he was found guilty on one count of first-degree capital murder and two counts of second-degree capital murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Okay? Now, the trial of Jason Baldwin and Damian Eccles began Tuesday, February 4, 1994, and on Monday, April 18th, they were both found guilty on three counts of capital murder. The next day, Jason, who was only 16 years old, was sentenced to life in prison with a non-parole period of 40 years, while 18-year-old Damian Eccles was sentenced to death. He got the death sentence at 18. All right. Isn't that crazy? Well, you know, okay, I'm, I'm, I've said before that putting a child in prison is yeah. counterproductive. Yes. However, from what I'm surmising so far, these guys raped and chopped up three That's the assumption, children. Yes. So far, even if they didn't rape them, they just chopped them up. That's right. pretty fucking harsh. I mean, that's kind of over the top. I understand if he killed somebody as a kid. Because, you know, we're, we're fucking, we're, we're, when you're a kid, you're an idiot. I'm, I'm 50 and I'm an idiot. This is true. Um, but you're still a kid, so. I'm still a child. But uh, who's wearing my ducky pajamas? I, I noticed like that. <clears throat> coughing my brains out. Anyway, um, but, you know, this here's like over-the-top aggression. And I'm not sure that that kind of aggression can be corrected. 
Okay. Well, like I said, you know, based on based on what you've heard so far, I can see what you're saying. Um, now, more than five years after those sentences were handed down, the three young men continue to proclaim their innocence and are preserving, pre- persevering in their attempts to have new trials granted. Now, that that in itself was not unusual. There are many guilty men who have succeeded in tying up the legal system in the process of appeals of as many as 15 years. Charles Ng. I was going to say, let's not mention Cheetah Ng. <laughs> okay, you read my mind. Do you need some water? He'll, he'll be okay, folks. So, what is I'm going to step away to get more more cough medicine. Okay. So what was unusual in this case is that they are they were not alone proclaiming their innocence. Thousands of American citizens were convinced that Jesse, Jason, and Damien were wrongly tried and convicted and are now were now lending their support to fight for justice. Every day the support is was growing and it now included many criminal and legal experts who are throwing the weight of their knowledge and experience behind the three boys. Now, Damien Eccles claims that he was found guilty long before the trial began because he was considered weird by many in the community because he practiced the Wicca religion and listened to the music of a supposedly satanic group known as Metallica. (laughs) Enter Sandman. Because we're off to never, never land. I love that song. Now, Jason believes he was found guilty by association. Jesse claims that his confession was coerced, claiming he told police whatever they had wanted him to do to say so that they would let him go. Now, under question in this case is not merely whether Jesse, Jason, and Damien are guilty or innocent, but whether the collect, the, I'm sorry, the correct legal processes were upheld to secure their convictions. Was the basic tenet of the American legal system, the presumption of innocence, discarded in order to satisfy communities' call for the revenge of the dreadful murders of three innocent children? Now, according to the families of the three boys, they were last the victims. The, they were last seen. Um, let's see, where was I? Sorry about that. They were last seen together between 5.30 and 6 p.m. on the night of May 5th. Now, the three boys had finished, got out of school for the day at, and they, at around 3 p.m. And Stephen Branch went home but left a little while later, according to his mother. And Christopher Byers' stepfather, Mark, John Mark Byers, arrived home at 3.10. But Christopher was not there. His brother Ryan arrived home at 3.30. Chris did not have a key to the house and was expected to wait outside until Ryan arrived to let him home in. Now, John Byers drove Ryan to the courthouse for a 4 p.m. appointment. And after dropping Ryan, he drove to pick up his wife, Melissa, from work. Now, they both arrived back at their home by 5.20 to find that Christopher still was not home. Although there was evidence that he had been there. Soon after that, John left to go pick up Ryan, but on the way, he found Christopher riding a skateboard. He took Christopher home, where Byers gave gave him uh, two or three licks with a belt in the presence of Melissa as punishment for not staying home as instructed. Before returning to the courthouse to pick up Ryan, Byers instructed Christopher to clean up the carport area, and he was last seen doing that about 5.30. Now, at 6 p.m., Diana Moore saw her, son's James, her son James James Megamore, um, riding bicycles with Stephen and Christopher, but had been unable to stop them before they rode off, and Chris had been sitting on the back of Stephen's bike. 
So at 6.30 p.m., John Byers claims that he arrived home from the courthouse with Ryan to find that Chris was, again, not home. Melissa was inside on the phone with her boss and had not been aware Chris had left again. So John, Melissa, and Ryan left their house at 6.30 to drive around the neighborhood to find Chris. During the course of this search, um, John informed a police officer of his son's disappearance. And according to John, he was told to wait until 8 p.m. before making an official report. Now, Byers claimed to the officer that the reason he was so concerned was that Chris had never disappeared like that before. This statement was later contradicted by Melissa during an interview on May 25th, 1993, when she told police that Christopher had disappeared on several other occasions for hours at a time. Now, John Byers called the West Memphis Police Department at 8 p.m. to report that his steps and Christopher was missing. In response to this report, Officer Regina Meek went to the Byers' home, and 15 minutes later, Diana Moore spoke with John Byers, informing him that she had seen the three boys at 6. Byers stated that this was the first time he had been aware that Chris was not alone. Together with Diana Moore, Melissa Byers, and John Byers, uh, I'm sorry, Ryan Byers, John began to search the Robin Hood Hills area, the last known location of the boys, and it was already dark by then. And at some time between 8.30 and 10.30 p.m., John went home to change out of the shorts and thongs, thongs, flip-flops. I don't, I don't want people to get the wrong idea here. <laughs> that he'd been wearing into a pair of overalls and boots. And, the t- and then he left again. The search party consisted of uh, Ryan Byers, Richie Masters, Brett Smith, and his sister, along with many others. They were soon joined by Officer Moore from the West Memphis Police, who continued to search with them from 10, about 10.20 until 11. When John Byers arrived home at 11, he called the sheriff to request a search and rescue team. He was to call, told to call Denver Reed, the leader of the Crittenden County what a name, team, the following morning. Um... He and Ryan left the house again and drove to the Blue Beacon truck wash. Here he told the p- people inside that he was looking for Chris and two other boys. He then drove his vehicle around the back. For some time, Byers and Ryan shouted for the boys and honked their horn. Still, still unable to find them, Byers and Ryan went back home. They were met by Melissa, Terry Hobbs, Stephen Branch's grandfather, and Diana Moore. After a short discussion, the group decided to take another attempt to search for the boys in the woods. Now, at 1.30 on May 6, 1993, Sergeant Ball of the West Memphis PD drove to the buyer's home to inform John and Melissa that a search for the boys was being conducted in the area. And then after he left about 2 a.m., um, Tony Hudson, a friend of John Byers, came to the house. And Byers and Hudson left soon after to search the Mid-Continent Building, which was being rebuilt after having been blown over. And they thought that the boys may have been hiding there. And when they arrived, they saw a black van nearby. It was locked, and they assumed that it belonged to one of the workers. They continued their search for an hour before they returned home with the intention of resuming their search in the morning. Now, the next day... Are you okay? Peachy. Okay. You've just been awfully quiet. That's because I want to die. I know. Me, too. My head's all fucking full of snot. And (laughs) I don't know what to do. Like, Okay, so I'll bitch you for just a second. Okay. Um, fucking, I'll blow my nose. I do sinus rinses, and I swear to God, the second that I like lay down or get comfortable, it drains into my lungs. Have like, you tried sleeping with your head elevated more? Yeah, I've tried everything. I'm just, I'm, I'm gonna be over. I'm by the end of this episode, I'll be dead over here in my chair. You're gonna have to figure out how to work all the fucking gear yourself. <laughs> it's all good. 
It's fucked up. I know. Hate I'm life so right now. I hate life. I know. Me too. So the next day, um, at around 6.30 a.m., John Byers called Denver Reed and arranged to meet him at 8. In the meantime, the search resumed in the Robin Hood Hills area with Terry Hobbs, Diana Moore, and um, John Byers and several others. So after meeting with uh, Reed, another search was conducted until 1.45 p.m. when Sergeant Mike Allen found the first body of the missing boys. Although he... His unsigned report doesn't state the exact location of the discovery. It implies that the body was found submerged in a creek about 60 yards south of I-55. An hour later, the body was removed from the, from the water by police officers. Shortly after, the second body was found five feet away by Detective Brian Ridge, and then a third a further five feet from that. 20 minutes after the third body was located, West Memphis contacted the county coroner and he was informed that the bodies were found near the blue beacon truck wash by the time he arrived all three bodies had been removed from the water or drainage ditch by police officers at the scene so by 4 p.m hale had pronounced all three of the boys dead the official autopsy report submitted by dr frank peretti i thought i can see dr frank in stein <laughs> no, like for real. That's what I thought. It just popped into my head. <laughs> oh, I have another complaint. Why are they playing Christmas music already? Like Charlie FM, my favorite station. That's all they're playing. So I'm not listening to any fucking radio stations. I, I, I'm dead serious. It's disgusting. And uh, fucking God, I, I mean, especially Christmas. continuously. It's like, come on, people. Yeah. Anyways, so I want to hear that satanic music. The Metallica, damn it. I want to hear the Metallica and the Pantera. <laughs> and the ACDC. <laughs> the ACDC. That's right. And the ACDC and the Black Sabbath. And the Alice Cooper. And the Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> Do you know Ozzy bit the head off that rat, I'm that bat, by accident? He thought yep. it was rubber. Yep, I know. That's disgusting. I know a lot he about He said Ozzy. he'll never live it down. Yep, never. <laughs> But he's the only—he's the only person that the Batman's afraid of. <laughs> saying he has nightmares. Just saying. So, anyways, <laughs> Doctor Frank Peretti of the Arkansas State Crime Lab um, and Kent Hale described the condition of the boys as they were found on the afternoon of May sixth. The initial conclusion drawn by police at the scene was that the boys had been raped, but this was not verified in the autopsy. The dilation of the anus was wrongly believed to have been evidence of anal rape, but it is, in fact, a natural occurrence at death. Well, I mean, because it happens. I was going to say, because when you die, all your muscles relax. Right, and you tend to evacuate your yeah. bowels and your bladder. Yeah, everything just goes sploosh, and you're done. That was gross. You literally shit the bed. You do, you do. It's fucking, that's part of death. Just yeah. Welcome to death, motherfuckers. Just uh, don't be just so know when you Just know when you're going to die. It's going to be a shitty mess. <laughs> yeah. So that way there, here's what I want you all to do. Fuck with everybody. <clears throat> and uh, eat lots of beans and cabbage and eggs <laughs> before you check out. Make that your last meal. <laughs> Make them work for it. Make them work for it. Ugh. That's horrible. Although there was no evidence to just... To suggest that all three of the boys have been sexually assaulted, Hale stated in his report that this may have been a possibility. Now, James Moore, born July 27, 1984, died of multiple traumatic injuries to his head, torso, and extremities with drowning. He had been found in the drainage ditch and had drowned 
in two feet of water near the bodies of the two other eight-year-old male victims. He was found completely nude with his wrists bound to his ankles by shoelaces. There was little evidence that James had defended himself against his attacker, and the lack of injuries caused by the ligature suggested he had not struggled after he was tied up. I got to admit, if somebody tied me up and killed me right now, I probably wouldn't struggle either. I'd be like, <laughs> Fuck it. I ate beans and cabbage and eggs. Just do her, do her. Just let me go. Just, you know, I would sweet death take me right now because I feel like crap. <laughs> All right. Now, this uh, this fact that there were no injuries caused by the ligatures suggested that he was unconscious at an early stage in his attack, and there was no evidence of sexual assault. Now, Stephen Branch was born December, I mean, I'm sorry, November 26, 1984, and he died of multiple traumatic injuries to the head, torso, and extremities with drowning. He'd been found in the drainage ditch near the bodies of James and Christopher in two feet of water. As with the other victims, he was found naked with his wrists bound to his ankles with shoelaces. There were many violent traumatic injuries to his face and head, along with a number of superficial scratches, abrasions, and contusions over the rest of his body. While the worms were similar to those found on James, they were much more intense. There was also a three-inch fracture at the base of the skull. Prady did not note the presence of extensive defensive wounds, although there was no evidence to support this. Hale and his report say that Stephen may have been sexually assaulted. I'm still upset that nobody's ever sexually assaulted me. I know, huh? If you do want to sexually assault me, you can send your email to scott.alexander at twistedbluellc.com. Question for you. Huh? Is it considered an assault if you like it? Tomato, tomato. (laughs) I'm just asking for a friend. Now, Christopher Byers was born on June 23rd, 1984, and he received the most extensive, violent, and most overtly sexual injuries of the three victims. He died of multiple traumatic injuries to his head, as well as the violent removal of his penis, the scrotal sac, and the testes. Jesus fucking Christ. Along with associated cuts and stab wounds to the genital area. He was found in the same drainage ditch in two inches of water. He was completely naked with his wrists bound to his ankles by shoelaces. The toxicology report also revealed non-therapeutic levels of the drug carbamazepine in his blood, which I didn't even look that up. I should have. I'm sorry. There were also a variety of healed injuries, Parady noted, that were defensive wounds there were also three sets of wounds on his buttocks while this attacks was sexual in nature there is no evidence of rape although hale did state that this was a possibility christopher christopher byers did not drown and he was already dead before being placed in the water now i'm assuming the three wounds on his buttocks were from the butt whooping he got probably yeah yeah because we've all been beat with the belt they don't they don't leave good marks i don't know i didn't check my belt i didn't check my butt this morning (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was a good night. Uh, I'm not going to look for you. It was just you and Angel. Don't judge. <laughs> now, what happens between me, Angel, and this jar of peanut butter is our business. That's disgusting. <laughs> now, Hale's report stated that lividity um, was present in all three victims and blanched with pressure. Lividity begins approximately 30 minutes after death and then fixes after four or five hours blanching no longer occurs depending on environmental conditions according to this the time of death could be placed at some time after daybreak on may 6 1993 although this is difficult to ascertain as the victim's body temperatures were not taken 
It was found that rigor mortis, you know, the stiffening of the muscle tissues, which begins after death, was present in all three victims. And that begins approximately two to four hours after death. And full rigor is complete eight to 12 hours after death, depending on the environmental conditions. According to Hale, it was difficult to determine whether rigor was complete due to the manner in which the boys were tied. But Peretti stated in his report that rigor was evenly present throughout the extremities. Now, there was no murder weapon found at the scene with the bodies. The boys' bicycles and clothing were dumped in a drainage ditch with the bodies, effectively removing any trace evidence which may have been present. The clothing had been held down with sticks, but these were not collected by police at the time. Six months later, they would find two sticks in the woods and claim that they were the sticks found at the scene. Two pairs of the boys' underwear were missing. The only signs of blood at the crime scene were where the bodies had rested on the bank after their removal from the water, and some blood in the water. There was no blood evidence collected. Luminal testing was done two weeks later, and at the time, luminal testing was not admissible in court. Well, that's about as useful as tits on a bull. I know. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you guys what down there in West Memphis. Why don't you do the luminal testing fucking 10 years in the future? Dumbass. Well, yeah, and six months later, you find two sticks laying in the woods and say, oh, these are the ones that held down the clothes. I love hearing about these fucktards. Like, seriously, yeah. and I, I, I'm judging you, and I'm not even a fucking detective, but even I know you got to do luminal testing pretty fucking quick. Yeah, I mean, you could still do luminal testing years later, but outside... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's outside. You have the out, the outside environment. And then yeah. you go, hey, we found two sticks out in the woods. You're going to find a lot of fucking sticks out there, stupid. A lot. It's the fucking woods. There's kind of trees everywhere. There's kind of sticks there. And there's a lot of fucking sticks. God, fucking geniuses right there. I'm telling you. Yeah, well, West it makes Memphis. you wonder about the legal system in the South, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm from West Memphis. <laughs> I got the IQ of potato. <laughs> Stop it. I had sex with my sister. <laughs> Stop it. My mom is also my grandma and my sister. Stop it. Where's idiots. your back scratcher? Um, I, don't, I have no idea. I know there's one on your. Oh, I got one. Okay. Hold An up. area on the bank had been deliberately cleared, and one imprint of a tennis shoe was found. So the day after the boys' bodies were discovered, Lieutenant James Sudbury of the West Memphis Police. Whoa! Oh, scared. I thought you were throwing it. Yes, I'm throwing shit over fucking expensive gear at you. <laughs> I'm sick, but I ain't you, retarded. You've thrown stuff at me before. Now the day after the it boys' doesn't ruin my equipment. Oh, I got to take off my hoodie to do this. Anyways, so the day after the bodies were discovered, Lieutenant James Sudbury contacted Steve Jones, a juvenile officer for Crittenden County. It was probably his cousin and his brother, too. <laughs> probably. And during their conversation, Sudbury and Jones expressed their shared belief that the murders had strong overtones of a cultic sacrifice. That's bullshit. I know. Bullshit. It's the same fucking thing we hear all the goddamn time during this time. I'm, I'm trying not to yell because I feel like shit. I'm emotional. I can't help. I'm sorry, boys and girls. But fucking, it's the same fucking thing. It must be Satan. No, these are just assholes. Yeah. Whoever does, killed these kids are assholes. So if somebody listens, like I listen to Metallica and I listen to ACDC and Black Sabbath and Ozzy. I'm not out there fucking sacrificing children today. Um, you know, that's a whole different day. I don't do it on that's Saturdays. Today. Um <laughs> No, um, but it's just fucking stupid. Oh, he listens to Satan's music. Oh, fuck you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember back then, you know, because 
you know, my, I was, we were going, Southern Baptist. <laughs> Anyways, they had many seminars that I had to attend because I had a cousin or something that had gotten involved with a cult. And they wanted us to learn, you know, the principles on what it, you know, how they get you and everything else. And there were long drawn out meetings about the music we listened to. See, that's stupid. Now, cult is one thing. Okay. Because yeah. you had like up here, you had the Rajneesh. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you, know, you, you got, there's just tons of calls. Uh, that I understand having an intervention about. Yeah. And say, hey, man, watch out for these signs. But just because somebody is listening to like uh, Nine Inch Nails or Disturbed or a- anything like that doesn't mean that they're sitting there going, you know, I worship Satan. Matter of fact, I have found that people that listen to rock and metal uh-huh. are significantly nicer and better people than those who listen to rapper country what's wrong with you then i'm an asshole no matter what because i just i have no fucks to give did you look in my backyard no why oh that's my field of fucks it's totally <laughs> fallow it's bare I'm like why should i look back all there? there is is tumbleweeds back there and weeds that's it there's, there's just no dry fu- grass <laughs> that's right there's, there's no fucks growing at all none like i went back there trying to pick some fucks and I'm like, oh shit i guess I can't give a Owl fuck because it, it's out there's no fucks so anyways um Jones then informed Sudbury that there was one person he knew of that was involved in cult activities that could be capable of committing such a crime. He named Damien Eccles. They agreed to meet at Damien Eccles' residence and to interview him. Now, I'm sorry, Wiccan is not cult. No, it's it is not, not a cult. It's no. It has nothing to do with that. It's the human version of witchcraft. Yeah. The human version? There's an animal version? It's complicated. (laughs) You're complicated. So at 12 p.m. on Friday the 7th of 1993, Sudbury and Jones arrived at um, the the trailer park in West Memphis where Eccles lived. Oh, well, that that describes a whole (laughs) lot. You've never been to West Memphis. West Memphis is a shithole. The whole thing's a trailer park. Is it? It's a crap hole, man. You've You've been there? Yeah, I've been there several times. I've been arrested in West Memphis. Were you arrested in West Memphis? Yeah. Did did they accuse you of satanic practices? Okay, I'll tell the story and then we'll continue. Okay, so like I'm out there, there's a couple truck stops in West Memphis, Arkansas, and I'm at the uh, I'm at the Petro, and I'm out there. It's a, it's a nice you know kind of a night. It's a Saturday night, and uh, me and some other drivers were talking. We're just shooting the shit, just talking, and this one guy pops up, interjects himself into our conversation. He's talking about this chick named Jennifer that lives in Oklahoma, and it sounds like my my friend Jenny Oshler. And I'm like, dude, I think I know the chick you're talking about. Just back out of this. You know, let's just be cool. Whatever your deal is, your deal is. And he keeps going. I said, dude, I'm not, I'm not telling you again. And about the third time, I plowed him. So here comes the cops, and we both got to go to jail. And I learned something valuable, a lesson from this, because we went in there, and then in came... I'm not sure if he was the sheriff or the desk sergeant. But he starts looking at me, and he's like, boys, they just got me up out of bed, and I got to be to church in a few hours. And blah, 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 blah. Do you guys believe in Jesus Christ? And I said the only thing that I could say, yes, sir. <laughs> I'll lie my ass off, right? Because what I don't want is a fucking exorcism, because I'm pretty sure if I, if I sit there and I tell him, uh, no, I kind of, I, I, I listen to heavy metal and kind rock. I'm an atheist. And I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much an agnostic because I don't believe in, in, in any of this bullshit. You know, then, you know, oh my God, now we have to baptize you because we don't want you to go to hell. We underwent a sermon that lasted hours. 
and hours. And by the end of it, me and this poor guy are looking at each other like, we should have just murdered each other. I mean, because that would have been way better. <laughs> way better. Way better than this. Well, moral of the story, he said, now, can you boys get out of here without fucking killing each other? We said, yes. He said, you guys are going to go to church today, aren't you? He said, yes, sir. We're going to go to that service right there at the Petro. There's <laughs> a church right there. And they were cool. They took us back to the truck stop and dropped us off. And we're like, uh, and it turned out he was talking about a totally different chick, but... Um, I was going to say, did it even have anything to do with Jen? No, I had nothing to do with Jen. <laughs> um, and we got in our trucks and left. It was just, don't ever get arrested in West Memphis on a fucking Saturday night, man, because you're going to get a preaching. <laughs> you're going to uh, get a preaching. Because there, no, there was no boy now. Fuck that. Fuck that yeah. shit right in the air. <laughs> so anyways, um, they talked briefly with Damien's mom, Pamela, and his father, Eddie, and gained their permission to interview Damien. Um, they conducted this initial interview in the bed in Damien's bedroom. At that time, Lieutenant said, <laughs> I know, right? I've had a few interviews like that in a chick's bedroom. Shut up. At that time, Lieutenant Sudbury took a Polaroid photograph of Damien and noted that he had a tattoo on his chest of a five-pointed star or pentagram and another unidentified tattoo on his shoulder. Now, two days later, an official interview with Damien was conducted. During that interview, Damien was asked whether one of the boys was more savagely attacked than the other two, to which Damien told him that he believed one of the boys had been mutilated more than the others and had his genitals cut. Now, police considered that this was information that would only have been known by the killer, but it was, in fact, common knowledge in the community. See, I want to point out how stupid Damien is, okay? Uh-huh. Because even if... Let's say I was in their, their their position and I had actually done it. Do you think one of the boys was more mutilated than the other one? Oh, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but he everybody was young knows. at 18 and the rumors around town were already spreading fast. So. I just know the rumors I've heard. I don't know. I'm 18. I'm stupid as shit. That's what <laughs> I, I would have said. I know nothing. I know nothing about nothing. I'm lucky I don't poop my pants because we live in West Memphis, Arkansas. My mom is also my cousin and my grandmother and my sister. <laughs> Fucking Arkansas, man. Now, the prosecution later used that statement to support their case that Dam- Damien had prior knowledge of the crimes. It was not generally available. So, But when that interview was over, no charges were pressed and Damien was released. Then Damien Eccles was born. He was actually born. His name was Michael Wayne Hutchison on December 11th, 1974. And uh, until the divorce, Damien's parents were constantly on the move because of his father's work. They would only stay in an area for a short time before they would have to relocate, usually without any notice. Now, Damien learned to enjoy his own company, making few friends due to his transient lifestyle. Now, when his mother remarried, Damien was adopted by her second husband, Jack Eccles, and they moved to Eccles' home in West Memphis. When he was 13 and five years had passed since he had seen his, last seen his father, Damien dropped his father's name and assumed that of his adopted father. That way nobody knew that his mom was also his sister and his cousin and his grandma. Yeah, that yeah. That he's his own grandpa. Now, his new name was only the beginning of many changes that Damien would experience over the next few years. In junior high, Damien's once good grades began to plummet, a situation that did not improve during high school. At 15, his relationship with his mother, which had been very close, began to deteriorate with arguments becoming daily. Now, Damien had been seen, was seen as different by his peers, a view he shared and deliberately cultivated. By this time, the black clothing he wore had become his trademark, including a long black overcoat, you know, trench coat, which he wore no matter what the weather was like. 
His clothing reflected his emotional state of isolation and depression, which increased dramatically over the next couple of years. Uh, now I know he's retarded, and let me tell you why. Why? And I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> in West Memphis, anywhere in the South, as a matter of fact, but especially, it gets humid as hell. So if you're wearing a long-ass trench coat, and it's like the summertime, that ball sweat. Is going, you're going to get swamp ass. That's what you're going to get. You're going to get the swamp ass. Yeah. And you're probably going to grow some fungus in there, probably some Venus fly traps, whatever grows in a swamp, maybe some gators. I don't know. But uh, that's disgusting. Okay. Nasty swamp ass Damien motherfucker. All right, continue. Anyways, okay, so... um. Uh, da, da, da. Oh, you know how the his clothing reflected his emotional state. Oh, he also started searching for spiritual truth and meaning. Although that was present at an early age, it became the focus of his life at that time. He had attempted for many years to find meaning in Jack Eccles's Pentecostal-style church with no success. Now that's he, the Holy Rollers, motherfuckers. Yeah, that's you guys the one that talk. Know. Yeah, I was involved with the Pentecostal church for a while. I've been to, yeah, I've been to a few Pentecostal churches. Yeah, I'll tell you what though. The first time I went to a Pentecostal church and somebody spoke in tongues, I looked at my mom and said, "I'm out of here." It scared me to death. Actually, because I grew up Southern Baptist. So. I grew up Southern Baptist, but one of the best times I ever had was at a Pentecostal church. Uh, the, uh, a friend of mine who's dead now, died last year. Uh, Richard Gill um, took me to one when uh, we were in California. When I was a teenager, and uh, you know the, the the pastor was great. Man, this is the first time I ever played a guild guitar. Um, good good fellers, good oh. fellers. It, yeah. it wasn't wasn't too bad. Yeah, you know. While I don't quite believe in the Bible, um, the experience wasn't was not bad. You know, yeah. as opposed to going to a Southern Baptist church and if you go, fuck, just don't, just walk away, run. <laughs> Don't walk, run Very quickly <laughs> Now, um, he also explored a number of other religions Including Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam Before he discovered Catholicism Oh, he's guilty He's guilty He found, he found I'm going to be a Catholic because little boys And yeah You're so dumb Um Oh, fine. Catholics never molest little boys ever. They do. But they don't. They still. don't have this long history. The place that you used to live behind the Catholic school had a child molestation station. It for did the not. Sakes. It had a Virgin Mary alcove. It was a child molestation station where they go <laughs> now. Bow down to the Virgin Mary, little Billy. What are you doing, Father McCallahan? Ah, don't put it in my mouth. I wonder if it's because he was Irish, so I don't know if his last name was McCallahan or not. Say, <laughs> I'm a, He was known to get a little tipsy for when he did weddings and like, yeah. I'm not an expert. <laughs> I just play one on a podcast, but pretty sure he's probably molesting some kids. You're so dumb. So for a time, he felt that he had found what he was looking for in Catholicism and was baptized and received communion. But no matter how devoutly he studied, the emptiness he felt continued. It was during that time that he actually changed his name to Damien after Father Damien, a 19th century Gothic, I mean, sorry, 19th century Catholic, not Gothic, priest who cared for lepers on the Hawaiian island of Molokai. The rumor mill in West Memphis would report that he had named himself Damien after Damien in the series of Omen movies. I figured that's where that was going. Yeah, so Stupid. did I. Yeah. You want to know why? Two words. Southern Baptists. Mm -hmm. 
I swear to God. Okay, so let's say that um, your parents named you Damien. Yeah. They are the first ones to jump and go, oh, my God, that's because Lucifer is in your soul. No, that's just what my fucking parents named Yeah. Was, was Damien, Which you know? I never thought Damien was a bad name. I would never name, I told you I would never name my kid Malachi. But <laughs> I that would. Movie, that movie freaked me the fuck out. Um, but, yeah, I said I will never name a child Malachi because I don't want somebody to look at him later and go, he wants you too, Malachi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start leaving you messages on your voicemail like that. I know, oh. right? Tammy. <laughs> Tammy, Malachi's looking for you. You know Tammy. I don't check my voicemail. <laughs> I very rarely check my voicemail. You should. I, and it's so funny because Cheryl leave me a message on my voicemail, and her first words are, "I know you don't listen to voicemails." Finally, <laughs> <Why leave> what? <laughs> so with this depression deepening, Damien still found no comfort in religion or girlfriends. Now Catholicism was soon discarded and replaced with paganism, which he discovered after studying Stonehenge and the Druids. Now here, Damien finally found something which made sense to him. The worship of nature and the belief in karma seemed logical and real to him, although it would not help his depressed emotional state. Between 1991 and 1993, he actually attempted to commit suicide numerous times with a variety of methods, including he tried to hang himself, take an overdose of medication, and tried to drown himself. Holy moly. Yeah. Now, his first contact with the authorities came about when he was approximately 17. He and his girlfriend at the time decided to run away from home. On their first night, they broke into an abandoned house for shelter. So within an hour, the police were there. Damien was arrested and was subjected to a number of psychological tests. From there, he was sent to Charter Hospital. And I'm going to mess up this name. I think it's Maumel, M-A-U-M-E-L-L-E. Now, during his stay there, he was diagnosed as manic depressive and prescribed the antidepressant drug trofinil, which he continued to take until he arrived on death row. It was after his arrest that Damien first met Jerry Driver, chief juvenile probation officer for the county and his partner of Steve Jones. Now, according to Damien, in a later interview, Driver had been convinced that satanic cults were behind many criminal activities in the area and was determined to prove his theories. Now, Damien and Driver's password crossed many times in the future as Driver would investigate Damien in regard to a variety of unsolved crimes in the area, none of which he was able to pin on the kid. Now, the first few months after his release from Charter brought with it many traumatic changes. His mother and Jack got a divorce and she remarried Damien's biological father, moving with him to Portland, Oregon. As Damien was still on probation, his parents informed the authorities in West Memphis of the move. These changes did nothing to help Damien's condition, and he began to drink heavily. Now, his condition deteriorated so seriously that his parents called the police when Damien locked himself in his room after he had threatened to kill himself with a knife. Again, he was treated for depression and alcohol rehab rehabilitation, but was soon released when he informed doctors that there was nothing they could do to make him feel better. Now, after his release, he immediately left Portland and returned to Arkansas. Records in Portland show that the authorities were promptly informed of this change and the driver's office was notified. However, there was no record that this information was entered in the Arkansas office. Now, Damien was staying with an old school friend on the conditional terms that he returned to school. 
On the day he applied to the school for readmittance, he was told to return with a letter from his parents. Now, Driver arrested Damien as he left the school grounds. The complaint filed by Driver at the time was that Damien had violated his parole when he left his parental care in Portland and because he had threatened the lives of his parents. Um, I didn't see him threatening the life of his parents, just himself. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. This, this cop is just a dickhead. Yeah, exactly. So Damien was re- immediately returned to the Charter Hospital where he spent two weeks. When he left, he found that his depression had greatly improved because the doctor w- who treated him did not allow him to dwell on his problems and insisted that he mix with other patients at the hospital. In December 1992, Damien sat for and passed his GED fulfilling the terms of his probation. As soon as he was released from the hospital, Damien moved in with his girlfriend, Domini Tier, in West Memphis. Sometime after that, Damien's parents returned. At the time of the murders, Damien claims that he was dividing his time between his parents' house and his now-pregnant girlfriend, Domini. Okay? Now, certain that they would they had their prime suspect, police would focus their investigation toward looking for evidence which had enabled them to arrest Damien. Any known associates of Damien were questioned. Both Damien and close friend Jason Baldwin received many visits from the authorities who would often park nearby at night in the hope that such intimidation would break the the (coughs) teenagers. On May 6, 1993, the day the bodies were discovered, West Memphis police received a call from Don Bray at the Marion County Police Department to to inform them that a young boy was there who claimed to know something about the murders. Aaron Hutchison had been at the police department with his mother, Vicky, when he had told Bray that the boys had been at the playhouse, quotes. And West Memphis officers told Bray that the location was near where the boys were found. However, no playhouse was found when the police took Aaron to the crime scene. Later, Aaron claimed that he had actually witnessed the murders, claiming first that he had seen men in the woods dressed up and talking Spanish, then later related that he had seen John Mark Byers kill the boys. Right? That's the father. The right, right. I'm following. I'm okay, following. I wanted to make sure you were on the same page. Now, despite the obvious inconsistencies, um, how much time we got? No, I didn't. I didn't even time this one. I'm pretty sure that we're getting close, though. Okay, because I'm almost done with part one. That's what I was asking. I figured just keep keep going. Okay. We're just going to roll it. My, my, I didn't realize I didn't hit, hit the timer thing. Oh, okay. Until we were about halfway through, and I'm like, fuck. Well, well okay. let's just wing this bitch. Okay, so despite the obvious inconsistencies in the boys' many stories... Um, police attempted to get him to identify Jason and Damien in a photo lineup, but he was uh, not able to do so. He did not actually identify any of the three adolescents until after Jesse's confession to the police in May. Jesse often babysat for Aaron and knew him well. Eventually, the prosecution decided not to use Aaron's testimony because his story changed so much and because other witnesses placed him well away from the crime scene at the time of the murders. Despite this, the media quickly learned that the police had a witness to the crime severely prejudicing the case. Now, disappointed that she would no longer be receiving any reward for Aaron's assistance to the police, his mother, Vicky, agreed to let the police wire her house in an attempt to take Damien. See, she just wanted the reward money. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. What a twat. 
wire her house in an attempt to tape Damien talking about the murders. She did not know Damien personally, so asked Jesse to arrange for Damien to come to her house. Although Jesse claims he did not know Damien, he was able to arrange for Damien to meet with Vicky just prior to his arrest. The entire conversation was taped, but no information helpful to the police was recorded. The police claimed that there was nothing audible on the tape at all, although Vicky claimed she had heard the tape at the police department and could hear everything clearly. The next day, Vicky made a statement to the police that two weeks after the murder, she had gone with Jesse and Damien to an Espat, which is a ritual observance of the full moon within Wicca and other Wiccan-influenced forms of neo-paganism um, in Terrell, Arkansas. She claimed that Damien had driven his red Ford Fiesta, oh, you used to have one of those, <laughs> to the empty field where the Espat supposedly occurred. You know, Fiesta means party, and uh, if you're driving a Ford Fiesta, you're not having a party. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not a party. I have a Chevy Sprint. Same thing. Same, same. Um, although Damien Eccles did not have a driver's license and did not own or have access to a Ford Fiesta. And Vicky was not able to identify anyone else attending this SBAT or even find its location. Or even a Mexican Fiesta. <laughs> Vicky Hutchison was still used during the trial as a corroborative witness to Damien and Jesse's satanic involvement. After the trial, Vicky admitted that she had made up the whole story. The police became even more convinced of Jesse's involvement when William Winfred Jones, that was my dad's name, Winfred, um, told them that Damien, while drunk, had bragged to him about murdering the boys. Before he could testify in Jesse's trial, however, Jones recanted his statement, telling police that he had, in fact, lied about those events. He had only heard rumors of Damien's involvement. Both of these witnesses' statements led police to Jesse Miskelly for questioning. It seems that the offer of a reward for assisting police in arresting the killers was too much for some of these people See, to, that's what I was gonna to say, resist. That's totally white trash, trailer park trash behavior. Yeah. You know, like, hey, we're going to get some money. We'll get a brand new TV. We're going to we're gonna bullshit, just say man. whatever they want they want to hear to get what we need. Yeah, it, that, that, it's, it's just fucked up that they're fucking with someone's life, whether he mm-hmm. did or didn't do it. You know, either way. Yeah, they're essentially assured that he didn't get a fair trial. Then, then and that's my whole thing. Yeah. Whether he murdered somebody or did not, he still deserves a fair fucking trial, and he's not going to get that with this white trailer park trash people. And I, uh, and I, I know that we got a good market in in in, in fucking Arkansas. I hope you are listening. You're trailer park trash. You are totally trailer park trash. Lick my sweaty nuts. My sister's going to take offense to that. No, not your sister. I'm talking about the assholes who did this. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I um, like your sister. I thought you meant all Arkansas, Arkansanians, <laughs> Arkansasans. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the end of part one. But yeah, to me, right now, it's looking like a lynch mob. You know? <laughs> that was a good band. Lynch mob? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that was a band. <laughs> but. Yep. 80s metal band. Oh. Do you go okay there? Can you close out the show? Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation. BlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation to interact with us. Remember, boys and girls, this show is copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast except for Metal Cross Radio, they're lying, thieving bastards. bastards. And we'll talk to you guys later on. Bye-bye. Bye.